if you're here this morning and you're visiting with us, uh, I'm Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you that you will consider joining our family here. We are, we are a family, and we do love one another, and we would like to uh, welcome you in and to make you part of the family. So uh, if you have any questions, uh, my personal cell number is in that bulletin, and you can call me anytime, and I will talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Um couple housekeeping items for our, our regulars and our members before we dive into Scripture together. Uh, first of all, if you have your bulletin, uh, just flip it over to the back there and take a quick look at the bottom about where we are financially. Uh, we have a lot of front-loaded expenses each year, uh, insurance and uh, parking lot fixing and snow removal in uh, January and February and these kinds of things. And so uh, we spend a good portion of the year every year uh, in the red because we have a bunch of money we spend at the front, of the front half of the year. Uh, but basically where we are is as of the end of July, we have uh, spent 59% um, of our budget and we have collected 56% of our budget. So what that means is, is that at the end of the year, if everything continues as it has, uh, we'll, we will remain about $10,000 short at the end of the year. So just want you to consider uh, how you might be led by the Lord to excel not only in your service and in your faith, but what the New Testament calls this grace of giving also. Uh, I've already taken up our collection today. You don't need to worry about it today. But just, uh, just pray about this. Pray about this seriously. And think about um, what the Lord would have you do by way of response, okay? And if the Lord would have you do nothing, that's okay, all right? Um, we, but seriously, that's where we are. And, um, and uh, pray about that and what the Lord might have you do. Have you do and follow his direction. Uh, secondly, I'd like to encourage all of you to attend our um, baptism service. We do not have a baptismal yet in the building although budget discussions are coming up next year really soon, and I'm hoping that this, this, this next year we will get an, an actual baptismal in this building, and that will be nice. Um, but we will probably still uh, try to do at least part of our baptisms out at Great Oaks just because it's, it's really fun to be able to do that out in the pond and, and that kind of thing. And it's a great celebration. We've got three people who are going to be baptized, one of which is my daughter, uh, Ashley, and that is really the joy of my heart and life at the moment, and I'm excited about that, but a couple of others as well. Um, and uh, if you'd like to be baptized, see me, see Pastor Jim, and we would love to talk with you about that and um, make sure you understand all that baptism means and why we do it uh, and why the New Testament commands it. And we'd like to talk to you about that and then uh, do your baptism if, if, uh, if you're ready for that. Uh, but we are also using that opportunity this, this year as a way to kick off our small groups ministry. And small groups normally runs from about September to about uh, the end of May. And, and it's our adult small groups where we get together typically about twice a month. Uh, I think Karen and I are going to start a new group this fall that's going to meet every week uh, on Sundays. And it'll be a great time, whatever group you're in. Uh, and if you really want to connect with other people in the church, you need to get into a small group. Because as much as we try to facilitate fellowship here in 
on a Sunday morning, you know, we have donuts and we have coffee and we have time to talk between Sunday school and church. And every now and then Rick will say, just extend everybody the hand of fellowship there and you know, we'll talk for a few minutes or whatever in the service. And that's great. But here's the thing. If you want to have deep relationships with people that will stand shoulder to shoulder with you through all of the ups and downs of life, other than your pastor, other than your elders, who will obviously do that because we love you and care about you. But other people in the congregation also who will do that. Uh, you need to get into a small group where you can be vulnerable, where you can study the Bible together, where you can do life together. And so I want to give you the opportunity to do that and to sign up for a group. And, um, um, and that will be when we start that. Uh, those small group signups will be at that event. So really encourage everyone to participate in that. Now this week we're going to be in Genesis chapter 21. We've got three more weeks after this of Abraham, and then we're going to jump into something else. Uh, I don't want anybody to get bogged down uh, in where we are, and Genesis is a long book, so we're going to take a break from Abraham after... Um, after he gets his son married off uh, in chapter 24, we're going to take a little break and go into something else. Uh, but this week we're in Genesis chapter one and I mean chapter 21. I'm sorry. And if you and I'd like you to spend just a minute thinking about the family that you don't talk to. Family that you don't talk to. Uh, if we're honest with, uh, with ourselves, I think all of us have at least some portion of our family that we don't talk to. Maybe it's extended family that we have never talked to. Uh, maybe it's uh, that we, people that we don't talk to anymore. And I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about your third cousin on your mother's side that you've never met that lives in Nevada. Okay, I'm talking about members of your immediate and, and slightly extended family, your, your first cousins, your aunts, uncles, maybe brothers, maybe parents that you don't talk to. Uh, and I know in some cases this is not really anybody's fault. You've just never really had any opportunity for connection. Maybe they live somewhere else and you see them once every 10 years or whatever. And so you don't really have a lot of opportunities for relationship. Uh, I know that when I get together with part of my family, I think with some of my relatives, the longest conversation is something like this. Hey, could y'all move your car? Because I'm parked in here, okay? Uh, we just, for whatever reason, have never had a lot of relational connection. But then I, I also think about this. I think about family that I don't talk to anymore. And it's because there's been some sort of relational break somewhere along the line, either caused by me or caused by them or caused by some other portion of the family, and then that portion of the family doesn't talk to our portion anymore, right? And I would bet, in fact, I would lay a substantial amount of money on the fact that if we're honest, most of us have some portion of our family where relationships are strained, where things, uh, because of sin, somewhere along the line, have fractured relationship. And it's often very, very difficult to put that back together. 
And broken relationships are, I think, one of the most painful, difficult, hard things that we experience. You know, if you get sick, well, you know, there's not really anything you can do about that. I mean, you can take the medicine if they have some. You can go see the doctor. Uh, you can maybe change your lifestyle a little bit uh, to consume uh, fewer Doritos and Big Macs and, you know, more bran. Uh, but, you know, but broken relationships, a lot of times there's actual real sin that's involved either on your side or on their side, and it's hard to put it back together. And Abraham's story here in chapter 21 is the story of how sin came home to roost in his own family, and it resulted in fractured relationships. So if you've got your Bible, Genesis chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. Now these verses describe in just a few words one of the major, major events in Abraham's life, the birth of his son Isaac. But remember, this sim isn't simply a description of, of an or a relatively ordinary event, the birth of a child. Lots of moms and dads can give lots of testimony about how joy-filled they were when they had their child or children. And especially because every pregnancy, right, that carries all the way to term is a long ordeal. In the Bible, 40 is the number of testing. It is not a coincidence that women are pregnant for 40 weeks. It is a trial. Amen? You ladies who have had a baby can testify. You husbands who have been married to a woman who was pregnant, you can testify too. It's a test being married to that lady during that, right? Um, all the hormones are carrying off everywhere, and it's, it's hard, right? And then the baby comes, and one of the very few times in my adult life as a man that I have cried and cried and cried, tears of joy, was at the birth of my children. When I hold that little infant in my arms, and they let me cut the cord, and the baby's screaming, and the, but they're perfect, just perfect. And you hold them next to your chest, and they're sewing up, Mom. And you're, you're just, it's, it's been this horrible agony for the poor mother. But you have this great, unspeakable, indescribable joy as this baby is there. Now imagine that you're having this child not because you've been to the fertility clinic or because uh, you had planned to have a child together and God blessed and you did. Uh, but because God had 
directly promised. God had even come down out of heaven and visited your house and eaten a meal prepared by your hands and said to you, about a year from now, at this time next year, you're going to have a baby. And oh, by the way, did I mention that the prospective first-time parents are respectively 190 years old? Guys, 100, the woman's 90. This is not happening in the ordinary process. That boat left the harbor a long time ago. And yet God supernaturally provides and blesses and enables this couple to conceive and then to carry this child all the way to term, and the baby is born. And, it, and Isaac's birth is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Remember, he said, I will bless you, and I will make you a great nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, and you will have a land that all of your descendants will inherit. And they get to be old. Not just like my parents' age old, but old. Really old. 90 and 100 years old, and they're having their first baby. Can you imagine what you would be like? You're old enough to be great-grandparents, and you are taking your kid to kindergarten. Can you imagine what that would be like? And Abraham has promised this mighty nation that's going to come through his wife, Sarah, and God delivers on his promise. And all the way to this point, remember we've been talking about this baby because God has has said over and over and over, no, 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 you're going to have a great nation. Oh, really? You know, I'm not getting any younger here, God. Maybe we'll try Operation Handmaiden and see how that goes. Maybe that will be the child that God blesses. No, no, with your wife, Sarah, you're going to have a child. And all along the way, up to this point, as you go through chapter after chapter of no baby, no baby, no baby, no baby, but someday, next year, the baby's going to be here. All the way along that, the reader is supposed to think to himself or herself, is God really going to do this? And then he does. He delivers on his promise. God not only kept his word, but he kept it in explicit compliance with the promise that he had made. He said, he said at this time next year, Sarah is going to have a baby, and not just a baby, but a son, and it's going to be born at precisely this time. And God keeps his word. And, and Abraham, in some of his greatest expressions of faith, obeys God's command. He circumcises the kid, not just on any, on any day that he thought would be a good idea, but on the eighth day, just as God had said. When you have your son, circumcise him on the eighth day. And so God uh, was, gave that command, and Abraham obeyed it. And, and remember also, he obeys God's command to, what, to name his son. He said, God said, name him Isaac, which means uh, he laughs or laughter. Why? Because Sarah in unbelief, laughed at what God promised. And Sarah says, this is a great scene with her. 
this dear lady laughs again. And she laughs this time, not in unbelief, but out of joy. Because it is absolutely ridiculous and incredible and funny, when you really think about it, that a great-grandma has a baby. I mean, think about how old you are. If you're 90 years old, when were you born? What is that, 1920? Right? That's a long time ago. And she is having a baby. And she says, look, everybody who hears this will realize how funny it is, and they'll laugh along with me. And they name the kid Isaac. And they name him that, first of all, because God commanded, but second of all, because it absolutely is funny that this could even happen. And yet God has made it happen through his power and through his word. He has fulfilled what he promised. And out of joy, they celebrate the next step in Isaac's life, which is his weaning. Now, kids in those days got weaned at a much later age than kids in our day. I think our kids were off the bottle definitely by a year. Uh, in this culture, the kid might be two or three or maybe even older than that when they stop nursing. But whatever the age, they have a giant party. Now, because just imagine this. I mean, my parents think that their job, I think, is to make sure that my kids have adequate number of toys and a, su a superfluous amount of ice cream. All right? Because they are grandparents, and they love that. And, and if, the, if the kid's not had any ice cream today, I'm like, yeah, but they went to Dairy Queen twice yesterday. <laughs> okay? But... These people are old enough, like I say, to be great-grandparents, and they're having, it's their kid. And so everything is magic. You know, I am sure that all my, I annoyed all of my Facebook friends taking pictures of all of my stuff that the kids do. And it doesn't have to be anything significant. Yesterday we went down to Shields Sporting Goods Store, and I took a photo of this giant bass they've got mounted that looks like the kids are holding it, you know, and put it up on Facebook. Why? Because it's my kid, and this is cool. Right? And, but these are parents that are celebrating every little achievement. Oh, he's not, he's not nursing anymore. Let's have a party. And so they have a party. Right? And why not? Why not celebrate? It's your kid. Kick up your heels. How many kids are you going to have? Everyone is, everyone is magnificent. Right? And, but not everybody is celebrating. In fact, in the midst of their joy, sin raises its ugly head. Look here. Verse 9. But Sarah saw that the son, Hagar the Egyptian, had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took, took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, 
He set them on, on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy, and she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And when the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down nearby about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, so she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife from him, for him from Egypt. Uh, do you remember whose idea it was that Sarah and I mean that Hagar and Abraham get together in the first place? It was Sarah's idea. Do you remember how back we looked, went way back at the beginning of the year, we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, and we saw God's design for marriage, that it's to be one man and one woman and not any other permutations of relationship you might get into? Remember that? And remember when we talked about Operation Handmaiden a few chapters back, how we indicated that any deviations from God's original design always wind up in a mess? Well, disaster always follows a rejection of God's plan. And they have rejected God's plan with reference to marriage way back here with Hagar, 14 years earlier. The boy's about 14 years old now. And disaster then comes on this family because of their sinfulness. Because sin sometimes has a long tail and it reaches into the future a long way. Abraham never should have been with Hagar, ever. That should have never happened. And on top of that, Hagar should have never entered the picture. She should not even have been on the scene. And if Abraham had been obedient, she wouldn't even have been in their life, in their family in any way. Because Hagar was a slave girl, and, and one, he got her one of two places. He either brought her with him out of his father's household, which God had said, leave behind your father's household. When your father dies, don't take any of his stuff with you. And then as a as so it was either then or it was when they took all the stuff with them, along with the slaves that his father had acquired. Uh, down to the land of Canaan where God had told them to go, and then where they wound up in the land wasn't fit to sustain them in all of their possessions. And so then they decided, I know what we'll do. We'll go to Egypt. So it's entirely possible they picked her up there when Abram, was in, a Abram at that time was engaged in another sin of lying about who his wife was. And Pharaoh gave him all this stuff, including probably some slaves, one of which may have been Hagar. So either way, Hagar should never have been on the scene. If, if Abraham had obeyed God to start with, this dear lady would have never even entered the picture. And then once she did, 
Abraham and Sarah certainly should not have got together and thought, you know, we're not having any kids, but, you know, you as an old man might still be able to make this happen if, if you have a girl of childbearing age. So let's, let's have you marry my maidservant. Dumb idea. Ungodly idea. And yet one they followed through with, and it's going to bring disaster into this family. Because what happens is, is whenever you have a situation like this, and by the way, I don't know if we will ever legalize polygamy in this country, but if we do, you will see this kind of disaster played out in families all over the country that try this. There is envy and jealousy among the children and among the women. And that's what you see every time in the Bible that someone tries this on, it winds up in a, in a wreck. And little Ishmael, who is now about 13, 14 years old, is looking over at Isaac and going, oh, what a pathetic excuse for a human being he is. I mean, come on. The kid now is not taking a bottle anymore and we have a party. What's the deal with that? You know, he's kind of, I guess, too cool for school or whatever. And, and Sarah sees this. And she is just enraged. And she goes to Abraham and says, get rid of that woman and her boy. Remember, she's the one who initiated this idea. But now she wants nothing to do with him and nothing to do with his mom either. Jealousy and envy and rage have just sprung up as predictably as mushrooms after a rainstorm. And so Abram, Abraham is predictably distressed about this. I mean, wouldn't you be if your one wife comes to you and says, get rid of the other wife and her children that are your children? And God intervenes and he speaks to Abraham and says, you know what? It's okay. I will take care. I will be the father to that boy and I will be husband to that lady. You need to do what you can and you need to send them away and essentially what happens is that Abraham divorces his handmaiden and disinherits her son his son and sends them off into the desert with some stuff this is again remember not everything in the Bible is is prescriptive in other words this is what you should do this is a good idea this is a terrible idea but it's the situation that Abraham has gotten himself into because of his sin earlier. And God says, I'm going to take care of this boy. He's going to be a great nation also. And Hagar has no way of providing for herself or for her son. And they're wandering in the desert and eventually the water runs out. And so she sticks the, her boy off under a bush somewhere and goes off by herself because she can't bear to watch her son die of thirst. And then what's interesting here is this. God, again, shows up in Hagar's life, just like he did the first time that Sarah tried this plan. God shows up again, and he says, what's the matter? Don't be afraid. Remember what Ishmael's name is? God hears. He says, God has heard. 
the boy crying as he lies. Lift him up, and I'm going to take care of him. I'm going to take care of you. And he, even this lady who has been twice now rejected and run out of the house, God says, I will take care of you. I have heard. But here's the problem. When the boy grows up, his mom goes back to Egypt, which is where she is originally from, and she gets a wife for her son from there. Well, Egypt is an idolatrous nation. You ever go up to Chicago and go to uh, the Field Museum, you can see the Egyptian exhibit that they have, and it's really cool, by the way. You should go. Uh, but what will strike you is the sheer idolatry that dominated that culture. Everything natural or whatever in the world is worshipped as a god in Egypt. And she gets him an idolatrous wife, and eventually Ishmael becomes just another pagan nation opposed to the nation of Israel, and that Israel eventually adopts the idolatry of. Where does this come from? From all the way back here. The fruit of Abraham's sin bears fruit for generations and generations afterward. And by the way, who are the sons of Ishmael? The Arabs. They're a great nation. Millions and millions of Arabs around the world. But guess what? They are all still to this day opposed to their brothers, the Jewish nation, the descendants of Isaac. Where did that get started? All the way back in a family that refused to follow God's plan and his will for what they should do. And the last, chap last part of this chapter here, uh, beginning of verse 22, is about Abraham making a treaty with Abimelech that we met last chapter, that same Abimelech, king of Gerar, uh, Philistine area, Abraham makes a treaty with him. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me in the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I've shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I only heard about it today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. And after the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines a long time. Now, remember when we first met Abimelech last week, uh, he, uh, Abraham and Sarah were carrying on their traditional lie uh, about this is my wife, this is my sister, but she's my sister to everybody that we meet that's a stranger so that I can protect myself. 
from uh, anybody who wants to harm me because they have to negotiate with me for my sister, but they might kill me over my wife. Now, you might think this is a bit strange in light of the fact that the woman is 90 years old. I mean, really, let's be real honest here, okay? But apparently, she was still something of a looker at 90 because the king of Gerar takes her into his harem and they... And, and God has to intervene and protect this poor lady for the foolishness that they have engaged in. And, and God has to intervene and he has to protect Sarah from in coming anywhere near Abimelech. And he comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, you stay away from that lady or I am taking your life. Because she belongs, she's the wife of a prophet. And if you come near her, you will be committing adultery. And Abimelech says, whoa, 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 stop. Hold on, right? Remember? And so, and out of this whole exchange, you know, he's had to go to Abraham and be prayed for that God would forgive him because of what he did in innocence. And so Abimelech has learned two things about Abraham. Number one, that Abraham is specially protected and blessed by God. Right? And he's learned one other really important thing that Abraham is a bit slippery. He is a deceptive man. He's a liar. And so he goes to Abraham and he says, You know, I'd really like to enjoy the blessing of God aspect of relationship with you, but not the deception part. So let's make a treaty between you and I that you won't deal falsely, which is a biblical way of saying, lie to me or my descendants or my children, and that we'll be at peace. Because Abraham is not a king, but he is a powerful, wealthy sheik in the desert. And it would pay to have Abraham allied with you and on your side. And so he takes, he takes his commanding officer, his commanding general, Phicol, and he goes off to see Abraham and says, all right, let's make a deal. You and I, we're going to have a treaty. We're going to be at peace from generation to generation. And Abraham says, well, okay, I swear to that. But there is one little issue we need to clear up, and that's the issue of this well. And, and I want you to uh, acknowledge this well is mine, that I dug it with my hands and it's mine. Well, Abraham has no claim, really, to any part of this land because it belongs to the king. But Abraham is allowed to stake a claim in exchange for some livestock. And so they exchange livestock and, and they make this treaty. And Abraham takes seven little lambs, ewe lambs, girls, and, um, and sets them off to the side as, as a witness or as testimony to this treaty. And so they name the place Beersheba. And depending on how you point the vowels in, uh, in Hebrew, it either means well of the oath or well of seven because of the seven lambs that are there. And then Abraham does something really interesting. He is something highly symbolic. He plants a tree. Now, maybe you don't think this is particularly significant. Maybe you've planted a lot of trees at your house. But the idea is this. It's significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, this area they live is the desert. 
And so the only place that you have trees that grow is places where there is a reliable source of water, which he has at this well. And number two, in order to want to plant a tree, you're going to have to want to live there for a while to see it grow and enjoy the shade and so forth. And then in, in Middle Eastern thinking, the idea of a guy who has his own tree to live underneath of is kind of the symbol of peace and prosperity. In fact, later on in Israel, you'll read about every man taking rest under his own fig tree. And the idea is that Abraham trusts God and finally. And so he is at peace he is enjoying his prosperity, and he's going to live there long enough to watch this tree grow and provide shade. I had a professor in seminary who told me, you know, when you first get married, you and your wife, whenever you buy a, a, your first house, you should plant a tree. You know, and plant one that gets big, you know, like a oak or a maple or something like that. And when it grow, as it grows, every year it'll be a little bit bigger, and by the time you're able to retire, you can put a swing on it, and you can sit up there and talk. Okay, and I thought, that is a great idea. I should do that, all right? We have some big tr trees big enough to put a swing in now, so I haven't done that yet, but maybe someday I should, right? Because uh, those are probably going to, they're probably going to die before I do, at least I hope so, but uh, but this is the idea, and, it's, and here you get a new name for God that's here. It's Yahweh Olam, which means the eternal God, the God who lasts forever, the God who has always been, who always is, and always will be. And Abraham trusts in the eternal God. Now, I've just got, I've just got a couple minutes before we're out of time. And I, I, I love this text, I love this book, and I can talk your ear off about it, but I'm just going to give you three things I want you to think through with reference to this passage. Three things. Number one, God always keeps his promises. Always. You know, one of the things w that we went through here with the financial collapse about two years ago or three years ago now uh, one of the reasons for that is that people, when they make promises, can't always be trusted to keep them. And so people took out loans for houses that they had no way of paying for and so forth. And then we had bankers in New York and whatever bundle up all those together and sell them to other people, knowing full well that there was no way a lot of these people were going to ever pay off their house. And it all became just this gigantic mess, all because people made promises they were not going to keep. Melted down the economy. But here's the reality. God is not like a human being. And when he makes a promise, you can, as the expression goes, take that to the bank. God always keeps his promises. Always. And so we read not just that a baby was born, but that a baby was born exactly according to God's promise. That it was, first of all, a son, not a, not, a, not, a, not a baby girl. A baby girls are great. I have two. But God had promised them a son, and a son was what was born. And he said he gave a specific time 
that it would be born. It was born at that time. And he, God even gave them a name to remind them that he keeps his promises. And don't laugh, even if it sounds ridiculous, because I keep my word. God always keeps his promises. And here's the deal, guys. I know that very often we get into situations that are very, very difficult and very hard. And it is difficult in those situations, whatever it is, to trust God. But here's the thing. He's the eternal God who always keeps his promises, always. Second thing, personal sin can have long-lasting consequences. Abraham sows the wind with Hagar, and he and his descendants reap the whirlwind for generation after generation. And don't ever fall into the trap of believing that, A, well, no, no one will know, and B, that, well, I've confessed this, so there won't be any consequences. Or when I get done doing this, that I'll confess, and then I'll get right with God, and then there won't be any consequences. No. God forgives, but very often he lets us continue to experience the consequences of our sin. Or maybe a long time afterward. And maybe the consequences that get paid will not just be by you, but even by your family and your children. Sin is a dangerous, terrible, destructive thing, and its consequences last a long time. This is the reason why God so strongly warns us to flee from sin, not simply because it's rebellion against him, although it is, but because it brings destruction in its wake for a long time to come. Last thing. Our relationship with God should play out in our dealings with other people. I know that seems obvious. If you look at the front of your bulletin, we have that cross, and it talks about loving God and loving others. This is basic to the, to the Bible, not just the, the New Testament, but the Old Testament. That if we love God, we should also love others. But here's the thing. Abraham is called the friend of God, and yet... In his dealings with Abimelech, he's been a little slippery. There's not a consistency between the faith he professes and the way that he acts. And the Bible says it this way. This is, this is John uh, in his uh, first epistle. He says, anyone who says that I love God and hates his brother is a liar and does not practice the truth. And then he says... We cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love our neighbor whom we have seen. Amen? Amen. Our relationship with God ought to play out in how we deal with each other. And if it doesn't, it says that our relationship with God is not all that it could be and should be. And we need God's grace to come for us at that point. Right? So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. I thank you that you provide us with flawed people 
who sometimes engaged in deep sin, and you've written about them in your word, and you've given us the inspired record of their lives, not of everything they did, but of some things that they did, that we might learn both positively and negatively from them. And that you, by your Holy Spirit, might use your word to speak truth into our hearts. Father, I pray that we would be convicted of sin where we are guilty. And that you would encourage us by giving us not just the motivation to repent, but the energy to continue in that repentance as we turn from what we have done. Father, we want to please you. We want to honor you more than all things. And we want you to be glorified in the church and in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would work mightily by your grace, that we might be indeed, as Mark shared earlier, righteous men and women. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.